Well, good morning, everyone. My saying uh, this is beginning to sound like a broken record, but I need to say it anyway. I miss being with you for real, incarnationally present and worshiping together at the Japanese Hall. Uh, even so, I am grateful that uh, we get to be with each other in virtual ways, even though screens are second best at best. Um, we need to keep practicing gratitude, don't we? I. Uh, it's so important. I keep re being reminded of that and I keep, and I need to be reminded. Uh, we were on Pender Island as a family for a couple of days this past week and um, I was reading the poet, philosopher, and teacher Mark Nepo and was struck by uh, this passage. Settle in. It's, it's a two-slide quote here. He says, when in the middle of difficulty it's easy to paint the whole world as difficult. When in pain, it's easy to construct a worldview of pain. When lonely, it's easy to subscribe to an alienating philosophy of existence. Then we spend hours and even years seeking to confirm the difficult existence we know. Or we rebound the other way, insisting on a much lighter, giving world if we could only transcend the difficulties that surround us. Life has taught me that neither extreme is helpful though I've spent many good hours lingering in each. Instead, I think we're asked to face what we're given, no matter how difficult, and to accept that life is always more than the moment we find ourselves in. In every instance, there's the truth of what we're going through and the resource of a larger, more enduring truth that's always present beyond what goes wrong. Ultimately, it's the enduring truth that helps us through. I love this, not least because it raises the question, how do we cultivate that kind of vision when to one degree or another, we're all living in difficult, painful, and lonely times. We know the difficulty, for example, of social distancing protocols and sometimes confusing guidelines and rapidly changing expectations. Like what are the rules around wearing masks again? Uh, we've become more aware of the pain of racial injustice everywhere, of the tragedy of overdose deaths in our own city. We're all feeling this deeply, and we ought to be. Many are familiar with the loneliness of mandatory isolation and with the sense of seclusion that can sometimes accompany our own personal struggles and sins, along with our unfulfilled longings and unfinishedness. Given all this, it can be hard to accept that life is always more than the present moment. It's, it's hard to identify the enduring truth that according to Nepo and other spiritual teachers like him is always present beyond what goes wrong. Dare we even trust that this is the case? As people of faith who are seeking to have our lives shaped in a certain way, the larger enduring truth for us almost always has something to do with Jesus. Some aspect of his character, something he said or taught or did or the way he was with someone, some invitation he offered. Like this one from the closing verses of Matthew 11. These are the words of Christ, he says, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. 
It's a familiar text to many of us. It's often quoted for obvious reasons. Who doesn't need rest? Who doesn't want to hang around someone who's gentle and humble? Who doesn't want things to be easier and lighter? It's a beautiful invitation from the heart of our friend and our savior. My hope today is we'll be able to hear it in a fresh way and that our burdens will become lighter as we do. But I also want to spend a bit of time with the verses that come before, partly because the lectionary draws our attention to them, but also because they provide some helpful context for knowing how to hear the invitation of Jesus. So let me offer a short prayer and then we'll continue on. Jesus, you invite us in the very verses we've just read to learn from me. That is how we want to come to you now. Make us teachable. Make us hungry and thirsty for the right relatedness of your kingdom. Create in us a longing to be encircled and filled with the spirit of truth. For we pray in the name of Christ. Amen. So before I read for us the rest of the verses in Matthew that are prescribed in the lectionary for this morning, um, we've called this series Unordinary Time. Let's recall that ordinary isn't to be understood as boring or mundane or uh, anything like that, but because this word was chosen by the curators of the church calendar to distinguish this long season from the various high points or extraordinary times within the liturgical year, like Christmas and Lent, Easter, Pentecost. And remember that ordinary time is also known as kingdom time. It's a time to keep front and center the enduring truth that despite appearances, the world's powers and principalities and governments and administrations are not the whole picture. That there is another reality around which we order our time, our rhythms, our very lives. So during these months, the lectionary repeatedly calls us to an ongoing, regular, consistent flow of life with Jesus and within his kingdom. So that's just a bit about the context for this series. Now the full gospel text for today uh, starts back in Matthew 11 verse 16. We go from 16 to 19 and then 25 to 30. And these are the words of Jesus. To what can I compare this generation? They are like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling out to others. We played the pipe for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not mourn. For John came, neither eating nor drinking, and they say he has a demon. The son of man came eating and drinking, and they say here is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But wisdom is proved right by her deeds. And skipping to 25. At that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and learned and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for this is what you were pleased to do. All things have been committed to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So the bigger picture in Matthew 11 is that things actually aren't going terribly well. Revelation is happening. 
Jesus is doing miracles. His disciples have been sent out with specific kingdom-centered instructions. Up to this point, there have been large numbers of people gathering around both John and Jesus. But the overall response of people is underwhelming. Most were merely excited or curious. Even John, who's now been in prison for a while, was beginning to wonder. In fact, it was his question that initially sparked all of Jesus' teaching in chapter 11. What was the question he sent his disciples to ask Jesus? Are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? Now, can you imagine how that must have made Jesus feel? Are you actually the real deal? Ouch! So, in the face of all this, in verse 16, we find Jesus in a critical posture, and he's looking for this picture to which he might compare this generation, some image that might sum up his experience of people these days. And then he lands on one. He says, you know what people are like? They're like pouting children sitting on the curb complaining that their playmates won't play their games. One commentator explains that in context, the meaning here is that people these days will not play John's and Jesus's game because John and Jesus will not play theirs. That people are not willing to play the kingdom game because the bringers of the kingdom, John and Jesus, do not meet their expectations. John is too ascetic. Jesus is too free. In their minds, in other words, John is too alarmist, always talking about fire and judgment, and Jesus is too social, too common for the taste of the key influencers in Israel. To them, this Jesus character just doesn't seem spiritual enough. He doesn't fast regularly, apparently he doesn't care all that much about what he eats or drinks. Dale Bruner continues by saying, but worst of all, He seems to lack either the discrimination or the moral resolve to separate himself from Israel's inferior elements, the collaborators who make money off Israel's colonial occupation, and the lowlife and secularists who demoralize Israel. Apparently, Jesus can be seen enough in the company of these groups to make him open to criticism. When we consider Jesus' response to the people of his day, I actually don't imagine him responding all that differently to our generation. How often do we find ourselves puzzled and bewildered by Jesus? How many times has Jesus confounded and upended my expectations? Am I still willing and able to be surprised by him? And then at the end of verse 19, Jesus says, but wisdom is proved right by her deeds. What's he saying? In effect, he's saying that whatever you think of John or me or of anyone, it's by their fruit that you shall know them. That a person's true nature and character is revealed by what it produces. Now the next section, verses 28 to 24, that's not included in the lectionary text is worth a couple of brief mentions. One now and one a little bit later. In these verses, Jesus brings some severe warning. What I want to note at this point is that when Jesus preached judgment, he never did so against pagans, against those who hadn't heard his message or seen his miracles. We just don't see this in the Gospels. Instead, Jesus' harshest words were reserved for so-called spiritual people, not to those outside, but to those inside. Not to those who need to be converted, as we think of conversion, but to those who thought they already had conversion, 
or its first century equivalent, the experience of the miraculous. To put it differently, the strongest language we have Jesus on record saying was for Christians who smile and wink when they hear what Jesus says. It was for comfortable Christians, for unreal Christians. And who of us is not in some way unreal? Let's hold on to that sobering awareness as we continue. Verses 25 and 26. At that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Lord, our Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and learned and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for this is what you were pleased to do. Notice with me what's going on here. At a time when Jesus could have been discouraged, when he had to preach judgment to those who refused to change in spite of what they'd witnessed, when he had to characterize people as childish, and he had to admit he wasn't getting the kind of response one might imagine a Messiah getting, even from John the Baptist, the hardiest, the hardiest of all believers. At those times, Jesus chose to give thanks. He gave thanks. For what? For the way God chooses to reveal God's self. Not, first of all, to the wise and learned, but to little children. Not to the religious elite or the top scholars, but to the underclass, the uneducated, among whom in his time were especially women, Galileans, and the poor out in rural settings who didn't have the time or the opportunity to go to the best schools. Verse 26, yes, Father, for this is what you were pleased to do. In other words, this is how it's been all along. This was your plan from the beginning. This is the plot line and the trajectory of God's revelation throughout all of Scripture. Proverbs 3, 34, God gives proud skeptics a cold shoulder, but if you're down on your luck, he's right there to help. Isaiah 57, 15, a message from the high and towering God who lives in eternity, whose name is holy. I live in the high and holy places, but also with the low-spirited, the spirit-crushed. And what I do is put new spirit in them, get them up and on their feet again. Luke 18, all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. This is the upside-down kingdom. This is the divine paradox that has been true from the beginning. This is what Jesus thanked the Father for, for what he said God was pleased to do. I love what one commentator said about this passage. Jesus is inviting a significant engagement and social analysis before he offers the frequently quoted words of comfort to those who are weary and carrying heavy burdens. If Jesus is in fact insisting that his blessing is known not by the mighty and the powerful, but by the infants and the lowly, then this is a time for us too to identify with the plight of those who live on the fringes of our society and the fringes of our lives. Some of you might be aware I'm taking a break from social media this month. I've been off for about five days now, and I have to say it's freeing in a whole bunch of ways. Um, one thing I'm noticing is the nature of my feed. Uh, the apps that I usually gravitate towards, particularly on my phone, Instagram being first, 
Twitter second, Facebook a pretty distant third, just aren't there. I deleted them. So <laughs> where do I go? What do I feed on? Something I've been able to do is actually read more of the various email lists that I'm subscribed to and the articles that they link to, so, and podcasts and the like. So On Being is one example. Uh, this week I learned about a black author named Jason Reynolds. Fascinating guy. Mr. Reynolds is the national ambassador for young people's literature and author of over a dozen works for young adult readers. In a short video, Jason Reynolds read the opening of his novel called Long Way Down, which sounds amazing. I had to order a copy. Uh, but what caught me first were his contextualizing comments. He said that he needed to offer some because the story has to do with the protagonist's question of whether or not to avenge his brother's murder. So here's what he said. What happens in our society is that we look at the thing and not the thing that caused the thing. Not all the things that cause the thing, right? We don't look at the catalysts. We just look at the catastrophe. And so my job is to better frame the catalyst, right? To make sure we can see what's driving that train and that behind all these things are human beings who have feelings and fears and anxieties who are oftentimes oppressed and marginalized. What a great mission statement as a novelist to better frame the catalysts to make sure we can see what's driving that train. I'm not sure if that's what we claim as a mission statement, but that's what he said he was on about in this particular uh, work. So I wanted to share this because I think it's important we not only read the often quoted invitation of Jesus in verses 28 to 30 of Matthew 11 through the lens of our personal experience our weariness and the comfort we need, but to ensure we're asking as well, what might be standing in the way of others who are burdened and hurting? What might their stories be? Could it be that you and I and the systems we're part of are creating blockades and barriers, whether we're aware of it or not, to the weary getting to Jesus? Another question, we could put it differently, what do we miss out on when we don't pay attention to other people's stories? What enduring truth might be unearthed by centering the feelings and experiences of the oppressed and marginalized? By maximizing attention on catastrophes, like Jason Reynolds says we tend to do, and limiting our engagement with the catalysts, I, I think we tend to act and react out of context, and that just shapes us in all kinds of weird and harmful ways. So I simply want to encourage us whenever we read Jesus' invitation in Matthew 11, 28 to 30, to widen the lens through which we receive it. So let's hear it again now. Verse 28 to 30. Come to me, all, who, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. So back in verse 27, Jesus says, all things have been committed to me by my Father. And then on that basis, he issues this incredible invitation. Uh, Dale Bruner said, in Jesus, God gets a face. Jesus invites us to himself, and in so doing, he invites us to God. So let's look at a few questions. Who is invited? All who are weary and burdened, all who are struggling, 
all who are carrying too much, all who are having a hard time of it, all who are fatigued, all who are overwhelmed, all who are limping and cast down, all for whom life has become a grind, all for whom existence is laborious, all for whom the juice has gone out of life and all that's left is the rind. To all of these people in all these circumstances, Jesus' ongoing invitation is come to me. Who's not invited? Those who have it all together. Or perhaps more accurately, those who think they have it all together. What do they get instead? I, I might suggest they get the warnings of verses 20 to 24. Here's the other mention of that section. Recall that those words are directed at those who witness the miracles of Jesus but refuse to repent. Now the Greek word for miracle is from the same root where we get the English words dynamite and dynamic. So we could maybe say it this way. Those who aren't invited, or rather those who simply won't hear the invitation, are people who experience the dynamics of Jesus, but their lives don't change as a result. May we be among those who hear, and may we be among those who enable others to hear as well. What does Jesus promise to those who come to him? Two things. First, refreshment. I will give you rest. Not just, I will save you only, John Chrysostom commented, but what is much greater, I will refresh you. That is, I will set you in all quietness. Love that phrase. I will set you in all quietness. Refreshment, also equipment. Here, take my yoke upon you. Now, a yoke is a work instrument. So when Jesus offers a yoke, he's offering what we might think tired workers need least. They need a vacation. They need a mattress. Not, not a yoke. But Jesus realizes the best gift he can give to the weary is a new way to carry life. A fresh way to bear responsibilities. Now, life is hard, but we still need to show up. The only question is how. And Jesus says, learn from me. In the message, watch how I do it. The, the sense is, go to school with me. Now, more about the yoke. It's not a sitting instrument. It's a walking instrument. Jesus doesn't say, take my chair and learn from me. He says, take my yoke and learn from me, which means we learn from Jesus along the way. So Jesus' school is an itinerant one. It's on the move. It's field trips all day, every day. Another question that's raised by this invitation, what actually makes think, Jesus think that this is going to work? Why does he think that we'll learn better if we take his yoke? For I am gentle and humble in heart. Hmm. It's because his style is different. Jesus is not austere. He's gentle and simple, which is pretty much the opposite of most of his contemporary teachers. We know from experience that a teacher's manner is probably nine-tenths of a teacher's impact. And so Jesus seems to realize this as well and apparently believes that his style is going to be passed on to us as students and that by studying with someone who is gentle and humble, we will be refreshed. I have to say, I'm coming to know the gentleness of Jesus in my own life. He's patient when I'm slow to learn, which is mostly all the time. He's thoughtful and compassionate in offering correction. So as our text concludes, Jesus reiterates his promise of rest. 
because his yoke is easy and his burden is light. Now there's one last tension to sit with. How can Jesus earlier describe the gate as narrow and his way to life as rough that whoever wants to hold on to their life, for example, will lose it and now call his yoke easy and his burden light? Well, the spiritual life envisioned by Jesus, life that is truly life, is always invitational, as we see in these verses, and at the same time, it is demanding and costly. They're not mutually exclusive. Both can coexist. As Brian Zond put it, easy yoke, hard cross, behold the mystery. It's mysterious, to be sure, but maybe it's helpful to appreciate that a yoke was something born by two animals in tandem. So maybe it can help us to hear Jesus say, become my yoke mate. Learn how to pull the load by working beside me and watching how I do it. Maybe Jesus' presence, his simply being there, is what makes the biggest difference. Doing the heaviest lifting and at the same time supporting us and carrying the rest. So friends, may you hear Jesus' invitation today. May you help others hear it as well. May you find deep rest for your soul and equipment for the journey. May you learn well from Jesus and be formed in gentleness and humility.